You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine-fingered host, Dan Johnson. Happy Monday, everybody, and welcome back to the podcast. Hopefully, everybody had a great weekend. I tell you, here in Iowa, it was absolutely gorgeous. Um, I got a lot of work done in my garden. Uh, Me and the kids played outside. And then on Sunday, I took my kids on a, I don't want to call it a death march because it didn't end in death, but the goal was actually to make them so tired that they would sleep good. Um, They'd take a nap and then sleep good uh, Sunday night. And it worked. So uh, I might have to take the kids on a couple more of those hikes uh, in the future just to wear them out. And that's the, that was literally the only goal. And it was fun. At the same time, we got to enjoy nature, uh, played with some bugs and some leaves and pointed some cool stuff out to them. But uh, got a lot accomplished this weekend, you know, and the biggest goal was to hang with the family. Um, I tell you what. I am looking forward to two things up here in the next two months. One is turkey hunting, and number two is morel mushrooms. Uh, Last year, I got very lucky, and uh, I was actually going to uh, check a trail camera, and I ran into a huge mess of them. And uh, if you've never had morel mushrooms, you're missing out. They're absolutely delicious, and... uh, Somebody needs to send me a recipe for mushrooms that aren't just battered and deep fried, right? I would love to try something else, whether, you know, you put them on a burger or, uh, I don't know, something other than just your good old fashioned, um, you know, egg whites, crackers, and deep fat fry them. So somebody send me a, a really good recipe so I can try it out. I'll give you a shout out on the show if it's good. And if it's uh, a bad recipe, I'll shout you out too and tell you it was dog crap. That's a joke. But but I tell you what, today I am I'm pretty excited uh, to share this podcast because I recently got on the phone with the head bone collector himself, Michael Waddell, and we talked about just about everything, man. This is one of the, this is one of the great uh, BS sessions that I've, uh, I've done in the 
recent future. And man, we talked about the hunting industry. We talked about, you know, how he got into the hunting industry. We talked about him growing up and I'm not going to say, uh, yeah, he, I guess you could say he was poor, um, growing up and how he got into hunting. Um, some of the people who influenced him to get into hunting uh, and not the industry, but just to be an o- overall hunter. Um, we talked a little bit of, we, about politics and, um, you know, then we kind of looped all the way back around and talked about family again. And, um, just a really good conversation between two hunters is the way I like to look at it. And, uh, I enjoyed it and I hope, hopefully you guys enjoy it too. Um, and I'm just going to let Michael do most of the talking and you'll find out a lot about him in the, in the podcast. But before we get into that, uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, a new partner that has come on the podcast and that is Ozonics. Now, you guys have heard me talk about Ozonics uh, in several other podcasts before. Uh, some of my blogs that I've done, uh, even on the uh, Wired to Hunt podcast. But if you don't know what an Ozonics is, you really need to go do your research on it. And what it is, is it is a, a little unit you take into the tree with you and it emits O3, which is ozone. And uh, long story short of what ozone does is it destroys bacteria that creates odor. So you put it above your head and it blows down, you know, it goes with the wind. And I've been using this ozonics unit uh, since, or this product, I should say, since it basically first came out back when it was the size of a DVD player or VHS and it weighed probably about 10 pounds, you had to take it in into the tree with you and it was big and bulky. A lot's changed since then. And uh, I was a firm believer in the technology the first couple times I've used it. I was a skeptic at first, just like a lot of people are. Um, and I had a guy... His name's Craig Intervold. He's been on the podcast a couple times now. And um, he's basically like to the group of guys that I was hanging out with at the time, hey, you guys got to try this. You got to try this. We're like, yeah, whatever, whatever. You know, this is a joke. This is a, a gimmick, whatever. And then you take it in the tree with you after he finally talked us into it. And you just kind of see the results. And you're like, nah, are you kidding me? And Back when they their motto used to be, you know, what's your aha moment? And that aha moment is ozone works. So it's one of those products that I, it's in my pack in the tree with me every hunt now. And it's one of those things that you guys really need to try, um, you know, try before you're totally write it off. So the first thing that you need to do is go to ozonicshunting.com and just read up on all the technology that comes with this product. Read about how it works. Read about O3 and ozone and, um, you know, check out their, their product SKUs and their product lineup as well and uh, see if it's something for you. Now, back to the giveaway here. We're going to be doing a giveaway of an HR200 uh on the podcast today and here's how you win the first thing you do is go to the nine finger chronicles facebook page right find the post that mentions this podcast we're doing with michael waddell share it on your own facebook page 
then go to Ozonic's Facebook page, like it, and comment Nine Fingers Sent Me. And uh, by doing that, you will be entered to win uh, this uh, HR200. And uh, I will be picking a winner later this week uh, or first thing uh, the following week once everybody's had a chance to, uh, you know, share and do, you know, get entered. And uh, I'll pick a winner, and uh, that's a good way to start off the, uh, you know, a partnership with uh, this company. Hopefully you guys are excited. I know I'm excited. But uh, enough of all the talk. Let's get into today's BS Session podcast with Mr. Michael Waddell. Mr. Michael Waddell, how you doing today? Doing great, Dan. How about you, buddy? I can't complain. I don't know if uh, you're getting the rain down there like we've had the past couple weeks up here in Iowa, but uh, it's wet. It is actually uh, raining now, and hopefully uh, hopefully there's not any bad news by the time this is aired because we, we're right now in a big-time tornado watch here in Georgia. We've been getting a lot of spring sales coming through here, thunderstorms, and the last couple of days has been really bad. we got a, a tornado has been hitting here and there, and so it looks like it's going to be a doozy this year when it comes to tornadoes. So we'll right. see, I guess. I tell you what, um, I lived in Alabama for about a year. I lived in Georgia for a little bit. Um, and I felt like every, and, and in the areas that I lived, nobody had basements, right? So right. A, a tornado warning would come through about once or twice a week in the summertime and in the spring. And it's just, all right, get in the bathtub or hide in the, in the closet in the center of the house. <laughs> That's right. Everybody's getting in the bath. In the bathtubs and closets, it's it's crazy. And uh, luckily, where I'm at, I got a basement. And uh, but you're right, there's a lot of houses that don't have them. And I tell you what, man, it, it's funny you never think of those tornadoes much, but they get pretty spooky, man, when they come through. Amen, amen. I always tell my kids they're just as afraid of you as you are them. You know, but it doesn't work. You know, like like you know, you tell them about the black bear, it don't work as good on, on the tornadoes. <laughs> oh man, that's funny. Um, so, man. I just want to BS with you a little bit today, but before we get into all that, um, how was your 2016 hunting season? It was actually really good, Dan, and it was so much different than uh, years before. And um, being that this past summer, my wife and I had a uh, we had a, a new baby boy, and he came premature in July, and so going into the fall. I knew it was going to be chaotic. Obviously, there was a lot of prayers. It was a lot of concern about our little boy. Um, he he come into the world two pounds nine ounces. So, I immediately made a commitment that look, I'm not I'm not going to hit the road as hard as I have in the past. And as addicting as I am to hunting, or addicted as I am to it, it it's a career. It's a pastime. It's a, it's pretty much my life, and and I'm pretty much sometimes over dedicated to it because I love it so much. I've been blessed to work, you know, in the hunting industry, but. I knew this year was going to be different. I need to stay at home more to be here just for her and, and my boy and all my kids. And so I decided to stay around the house. But the flip side of that, it, man, it turned into probably the best season I ever had here in the South because I was home, but that still didn't mean I couldn't slide out every once in a while in the morning or an afternoon to go hunt in Georgia. It gave me a lot more time to kind of, when I had some extra time to myself, to go kind of hone in on some, some good Georgia hunting and some deer that are typically really tough to hunt. They still were, but I was here. I had a lot of time to dedicate to it. So long story short, I ended up killing the two best deer I ever shot in Georgia with my bow and arrow, both 
both well into Pope and Young, one that's probably close to 150. And so for me, it was kind of cool because I, I got a chance to spend a lot of time with my family, but I also got a chance to hunt a state that I normally wouldn't have put this much time into it simply because, to be honest, you're, I was spoiled. I mean, you're spoiled when you get to go to Kansas, Illinois, you know, Iowa, Indiana, and, and concentrate on spending your, you know, five to seven days at a time in those states. But instead, I spent months in Georgia, and it gave me a chance to kind of hone in on two good ones. So the first question that comes to mind when you say that is, you know, you mentioned being spoiled going to some of these other states. Did you have to rethink your strategy, you know, coming back home and hunting uh, you know, a southern state that, you know, typically people say, hey, uh, name a big buck state. No one's going to say Georgia, right? No, that's correct. It, it did, and, and and I'll be the first to say, I think 90% of the hunting personalities are the people who get a chance to do television shows. If they're successful and have the sponsors and, and have the opportunity to do what we do, we're spoiled. Let's face it. I mean, I know everybody on Facebook, you know, you'll see a lot of hate and, well, you know, hey, you guys get to do this and that, and a lot of it is true. Now, some people just hate us fact that they just ain't got no joy in their life but when it gets down <laughs> to it i mean i i know i'm a blessed man i grew up i grew up in georgia you know hunting and fishing and so with that said i i really appreciated the first chance i had a chance to hunt northeast montana or hunt iowa uh you know or hunt illinois it, it's it's night and day difference it doesn't mean that it's easy it just means that you know you're hunting a resource that can yield unbelievable results not only in deer activity but just in the size of the deer and so it is definitely easy to get spoiled when you get a chance to do that job however it is part of the adventure it is documenting these different areas in different states and we've always took a lot of pride in kind of documenting as is this adventure tells itself right. we don't have to be actors we don't have to pretend something happens if it's a state that we can legally bake corn or put out big and jay then we show the people who watch it we're not trying to hide anything we just kind of represent that we're blessed guys who get a chance to hunt some great areas here's what it is and it's almost like a bunch of high school kids other than the fact that we're 43 with families you know <laughs> so i mean when it gets down to it so so no doubt i did have to restrain my strategy number one um i had to not be selfish uh because you know from the spoil standpoint of getting a chance to hunt these other great resources in different states um, I had to know that, you know, look, I don't need to be on these trips, even though I want to be, you know, Nick and T-Bone can go on those hunts and do those television shows. I'm going to stay here. And so I was not as part of many, as many TV shows in the field hunting this year. Um, but those shows I did in Georgia. Now I did get the chance to go some stuff. I like, I drew a Nevada public ground elk tag. I mean, I, I did that. I talked to my wife. She's like, look, you got to go on that. You're not, you, you've you been trying to get this tag for 15 years. You finally got it. You need to go hunt. And I went out there early September, got me a really nice bull, like 376. He was a really super cool bull. Um, and, and I'm sorry, it was three, 367. I got it backwards, but that's what a son is supposed to do. You can, t- you can stretch <laughs> a little bit. But, but, um, but anyway, when it gets down to it, I, I pulled off the road. And so yeah, I had to rethink really really that part of it as far as the way I hunt. Um, it was a different vibe because I was getting a chance to kind of put out a lot of trail cameras. You know, I got the wireless trail camera so I could kind of monitor what was going on. So I was around here. So it was easy for me to kind of route, you know, get up and hunt when I knew it felt like the percentages were in my favor based on right. 
amount of activity I was seeing on the cameras or our sign or the time of year when the weather was right. So it was really cool to be here and let the hunt kind of come to me rather than me kind of run to the hunt um, because traveling so many times, even when you go to good spots, you have no control over it. If you decide to hunt, you know, November 1st through the 7th in Illinois, well, if you get up there and if it's unseasonably warm, then you might have been better off to go the week before and the week after. So you never know. So this gave me an opportunity to be here that they might be four, five, six days. I didn't even go to the woods. You know, I'm just sitting here monitoring my cameras, and then all of a sudden the weather front's coming in. I know it, and I'll be able to tell my wife, look, for the next two or three days I'm going to hunt hard. And and so she'd, you know, like, go ahead. So it was definitely a rethought process. It was more uh, deliberate, consistent, rather than traveling somewhere, hunting as hard as a white man can hunt for seven days and then going home. Right. Uh, you know, it, it, and, and, and so it was different in that regard. And plus the fact that the southern deer just have so much bedding, so much browse and food that sometimes it's really hard to funnel them through or, or to make them, you know, do certain things, as you know, because you, you've hunted and lived in Georgia and Alabama, so you know how that is. Yep. So back to the family right off the bat. How is your boy doing? He is doing excellent. He's in there in the living room right now, and the uh, little thunderstorm's coming through here, so... He was out there listening to that lightning crack. I, I, I was getting him used to when he's getting ready to go shoot his first turkey maybe in a couple of years. So, yeah, he's doing good. He, he's now uh, he's about the size of a big old long beard gobbler now. He's over 20 pounds and just nice. coming on. He's rolling over. He's, he'll be nine months here in a couple of days. And uh, he's still behind on a few areas. But overall, Dan, he is just doing so good. He's, it's been such a blessing, man. There were so many prayers out there for that little boy. And uh, it's just it was it, it's actually was just a kind of a cool opportunity for me to be at this point in my life and career, and to have this little little youngin right here. And I have I love kids. I love all my kids. This makes my fifth kid. So obviously we got our hands full. But right, you know, I think the good good Lord said He said, "Hey, when you a kid is like having another arrow in your quiver," and that's exactly right. what I feel like. Good. Now, I know I've talked to uh, some of the other guys in the industry and, you know, some of these guys are on the road for 300 days out of the entire year. You know, that's that's an aggressive schedule. But do you see yourself now, you know, you've been in the industry a long time. Do you see yourself kind of weaning yourself off these these big yearly schedules or and, you know, staying home or are you going to ramp it back up once, uh, you know, juniors all grown up? I, I definitely find myself now. Um, first of all, I think the number one thing is, I mean, when, when you hear those schedules like that, there's no way. I mean, obviously, you, I think it's easy in this industry to kind of find an excuse to stay gone more. Number one is because passionately you love what you do. I mean, who right. who who loves to hunt is not going to say no to a turkey hunt. Who's not going to say when you have the opportunity, I can go to Iowa and hunt a deer, or I'm going to go to Oregon to chase an elk, and I've never been there. And then you got an opportunity maybe to go to Alaska to hunt caribou or whatever. So what I found that you, you can you can find a way to make it seem legit that you have to be everywhere, but it's not as much a necessity as it is a want or a desire because – if you passionately love it, you want to be out there. And so I've learned, and I say this now, that a lot of the stuff that, that you can do in my, my place was, a lot was work-related. Like right now, there's, there's I mean, and, and the shows are work, don't get me wrong, but if you can figure out a way to 
to balance it and to figure out what you can say yes to, what you can say no to, how to balance what's important with your family, your, your wife, you know, the other things. And I'm saying that coming off, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've uh, had some failed marriages. And so now I think I'm smarter. I'm less self selfish than I was before. I think some of those times when I was selfish helped me in my career to, to get out and challenge myself to hunt some situations that I wouldn't have put myself in had I not basically just been running so hard. So now, Dan, yes, I'm, I'm definitely more deliberate in what I do. I'm a lot less selfish in what I do. That doesn't mean that you can't enjoy or do some things you've never done. But now I look at I look at the weekends different. I look at these trips different. I look at I look at the hunts different. I, I look at you know where I go turkey hunting. You know, and and who I can bring along that's maybe in my family, and uh, and see them be successful and, and take my kids to these National Wild Turkey Federation events so they can enjoy and see not only what's out there, but also see what I do for a living and get a better understanding of where my time is spent. And, um, and so, yeah, I think I've definitely weaned down a lot, but it doesn't mean, I, I think I figured out how to do more by doing less, if that makes sense. I've, I've, right. I've definitely have learned to not waste my time doing things that are just kind of doodling in the wind. And, uh, because the kids grow up, you know, and then, and then when it's all said and done, the, the things that you got here at home are, in the end, going to be the most important thing to all of us if you focus on that. And so, uh, I've been really blessed to, to do all that. And I say all that not to say that somebody's wrong by running so hard. I say that because I've I've, I've done it. I've been there. I've done that. I see I see what I've gained in it. I also see what I've lost in it. And at the end of it, the number one gain is I've had a chance to hunt some areas I never thought I'd ever see. And and now I've I've been able to refocus and understand how much I truly love the outdoors and respect of just how important our dominion and our opportunity to hunt and fish is and to have a chance to look back all these years and even now to celebrate it and to hopefully through my adventures hopefully know that somebody else has decided to give it a shot whether it's to buy a hunting license for the first time or maybe to venture out of maybe their home state of georgia or alabama or even iowa and to try something different and to go somewhere um, I, I think that's what it's all about. It, it's definitely not about how big an animal I've killed. It's about how those experiences and those adventures I've taken that maybe has, you know, kind of got into the living rooms of other people's homes that's made them say, this is fun, this looks cool, um, because I think it would be shallow just to say, hey, look at me, I killed something bigger than you and I've shot more turkeys or whatever. I think that would be really shallow, and I think if you do it for that reason, I don't think – you're going to find much success and you're certainly not going to do a lot of good to the hunting industry. Right. For sure. Now kind of sticking with family, but you know, switching topics just a bit, let's go all the way back to uh, when you were just a little one. And I want you to talk about some of the very first memories that you had as a kid with your families, I guess, being introduced to the outdoors. Well, when I was a kid, um, my, I, I remember my dad um, and my Uncle Morgan was the first two people I ever realized that hunted kind of for sport, I guess you would say. I mean, obviously, they ate everything they shot. And even looking back further than that, my Papa Waddell, he was the first person I ever saw really hunted. And, and he, I don't even know that he'd done it for sport. I mean, I remember him doing things and, you know, having turtle traps out and, and running trot lines and 
I mean, he ate everything. I mean, I remember him catching coons and feeding them out in a rabbit pen and, and with corn and eating them. Um, but it's, it's like growing up in a rural area in Georgia, I think I always was around hunting and fishing. And, and really, when I was about 11 or 12 years old, did I really realize that it was actually something you could do just for fun, I guess, as well, right. rather than just substances. And, and, and I look back now, I feel really blessed to see that some people in my family didn't hunt just for the standpoint of look at what I shot or trying to kill a trophy that put on the Boone and Crockett scale or Pope and Young. They were hunting because they were eating this meat. They depended on it. And so it was my dad and my Uncle Morgan who really realized and helped me understand that through hunting was what they like to do past just, um, you know, just, just, just something to eat. And so, uh, I think there's two sides of that. So, so looking back, it was my dad and Uncle Morgan really got me into it. Then when I was young, they, they really would have me out there and, and just, you know, taking me squirrel hunting, rabbit hunting, you know, started deer hunting when I was about 12 years old, turkey hunting when I was about 13. So what you're saying is that it necessarily wasn't about just the meat. It was about going out and enjoying yourself at the same time. Yeah, and, and it was weird, it, it, and really, at the time, I didn't really, I thought everybody hunted. I thought everybody right. fished, because I grew up in this country as a chicken coop in this area called Booger Bottom, Georgia, that everything was just country living. I mean, we had just a couple channels, the old, you probably remember the days you turned the antenna, and it, you know, we could watch <laughs> Dukes of Hazard on Friday night, and if you was you know, had a little extra money, you could get a super booster and get like TBS and watch the Braves. I mean, literally we didn't have much and, um, but we had everything. And so everybody, everybody around me, all these country people had gardens, they hunted, they squirrel hunted. But those early stages of remembering that I didn't see them doing it just for fun. They, they right. did it to, to eat. And it was like, it was almost like how we go to the grocery store or maybe run to McDonald's. I remember some of these old timers doing it at that level, but it was my dad, Michael Morgan, that I first realized that, wait a minute, they're not doing this because we don't have meat in the freezer. They're doing this because they want to shoot a big buck. They're doing this because it's just a big thing they do on the weekends after they've worked their butt off, you know, 60 hours a week, yep. and now they get a chance to go hunting. And so it was kind of cool because I don't think a lot of the culture now, even a lot of the people on the TV shows, grew up that way that they saw both sides of it. Right. And so for me, it gave me a newfound respect of what both hunting for, for food, hunting for – substances and hunting for sport and just almost i call it like a redneck prozac i mean literally i mean our counselor is 20 foot up a you know oak tree on a frosty morning i mean that that's what kind of resets our you know go get them clock and makes us strong to go root around a little bit in life and you know go to work on a monday morning with a decent attitude if we don't get those weekends that we can enjoy and relax and recharge in the woods not necessarily just shooting something then it becomes more of a you know, life is harder to deal with, and only people who hunt understand that. So for me, uh, I remember seeing both sides of it, and so, and even to this day, I kind of dabble into both. I mean, my my freezer is full of deer meat, and I looked, and I had seven, you know, frozen wild turkeys, and I told my wife, I said, we got to thaw and eat things. It's time to eat, <laughs> eat some turkey, you know, we need to make room for the new hatch coming in, or new batch that's going to be coming in the spring when we, you know, find some success. So I don't know. I, I feel like I was uh, – I think John Denver said, you know, thank God I'm a country boy. I really do look now and really appreciate it. And what's kind of different now is raising my kids. They'll never see us hunting at the level that I remember my Papa Waddell did. I mean, literally, Dan, I mean, I remember seeing him 
doing things now that I look back, it was highly illegal. I remember seeing him have bird baskets out, like literally bird baskets. But he wasn't trying to catch a quail to be bragging. He was trying to catch some quail because there was like a wild chicken to him, you know? I mean, literally. And so, you know, rabbit boxes, uh, you know, trap lines and going gigging for frogs and, and literally like, you know, finding, you know, going, you know, looking under stumps and, 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 and banging around in the swamps trying to find, you know, loggerhead turtle, snapping turtle to eat. And so, uh, you know, I remember it didn't matter what time of year, if he saw a rabbit out there other than the summer because it might have worms in it, I would whack that rabbit and eat it. So <laughs> it was so cool for me to see that. He, he wasn't even thinking about things being illegal. He was thinking it was what was for supper. Right. He, di- he didn't, like, shoot this to post a picture to put on Instagram. He was doing it because he could tell – you know, Grandmama, look, we're going to eat good tonight. You know, I got this sweet corn. We got some butter beans and got some fruit rabbit. I mean, end of story. And so, uh, I, and so I just feel like super blessed. And sometimes now reminiscing, I go back to those days and I realize that, man, what a lucky dude I've been. And it's really not just because of where I've got a chance to go since my career in the hunting industry gate. I had that opportunity. It's really the foundation of where I started there. And I think that is what's helped me somewhat feel legit and remain legit and hopefully portray that I'm not a poser at all. This is yeah. really me. This is what I love to do. And if I never, ever chance, get a chance to ever do another television show in this industry or a podcast like I'm doing with you, I'm going to hunt and fish until the good Lord gives me a breath, just like so many of the listeners are going to do. Right. So it's not about what I shoot, how big I shoot, what I shot it with or look at me, I'm tough or I'm this and that. It's completely about, it's just something that's a part of me, like walking, like breathing, like loving a, a good Sunday dinner. You know, um, I just love it. It's, it's really gives me a lot of joy. So, you know, as you started growing up, was, was there a specific moment, you know, you were, because for me, I can remember growing up and my uncles were trappers, right? Um, and some of my first outdoor experiences were my my uncle was out in college, so my grandma had to run the trap lines. And I spent a lot of time on the farm with my uh, grandparents. They were basically my babysitters growing up. And I remember it was my job. My grandma would pull the trap out of the water, and if the animal was still alive i just beat it over the head with a baseball bat (laughs) to finish it off so right um and that for me was kind of uh i like doing this kind of stuff um but but never really got hardcore into it until later on in life was there a moment uh in your life that you know especially like the teenage years where it just was kind of a boom i am gonna be an outdoorsman yeah i mean i think i think early on when I had a chance to kind of dig into it, actually my mother, um, used to just, you know, I, re- I remember my mom and dad actually getting in fusses, like getting in fights about my dad always hunting. And I remember my mom saying, boy, you ain't going to hunt as much as your daddy. You're going to stay here with your mama and just, <laughs> just typical little mama talk, you know? And, and uh, and I remember, and I remember telling her, like, I'm talking about like nine and 10 years old, like, yeah, mama, I, I'm just going to, daddy's crazy. He's cold out there. And, you know, this and that. And, it, and it's funny. I never forget when I was about 11 or 12, my dad said, boy, you want to go hunt with me? I said, well, sure. You know, and, and prior to that, I was going squirrel hunting and stuff like that and rabbit hunting, but it was deer hunting that I remember my dad was obsessed with. And so I remember going with him and then I went out and shot me a good buck. 
one one day one year my actually one of my first hunts I ever went on when i was about 12 years old shot a buck ended up winning the big buck trading post that particular morning i actually shot three deer and um and what's funny is I remember getting back and my mom, and I was just giddy and glowing and immediately <laughs> that night after I shot him and we didn't took him to the deer processor and this and that. I remember my mama said, boy, she said, I done, I done lost you, ain't you? And I said, she said, you're going to be hunting with your daddy every chance you get. And I remember telling her, mom, I love you, but yeah, I'm going to be with daddy hunting, you know. <laughs> and, and so I probably even then I knew I loved to hunt. But from a, from, from a standpoint of where I was really bitten and it just, like took it to a whole nother level is when i was about 13 or 14 we started seeing wild turkeys around our house in georgia and um i remember my uncle morgan said you ain't gonna believe what i saw down there by the corner stand man we we guessed from bigfoot to mountain lions to sheep i mean literally i mean and and then he said no as a wild turkey and so that next spring me and dad had a ben lee owl hooter and a lynch foolproof box call and a remington 870 and lo and behold, knew nothing about it, got lucky, and killed a world record Jake. <laughs> I mean, we was hooked. <laughs> and, um, and so I just become obsessed with the idea that you could take, you know, these calls and learn the language of this wild animal. And the better you mastered it and understood the woods, the more you could find success. And about that same time, too, Dan, that was instrumental in me falling in love with turkey hunting was the fact that kind of the boom and the big deer that was killed in the in our area where we had a lot of corn and soybeans in the south, everything turned into CRP. All the fields become pine trees. That really hurt the, the amount of deer in our area because obviously all this forage and all these protein-rich you know, farm fields become just a pine tree. And, uh, and so at that single moment in history, too, everybody in the world, hunting become really popular uh, as far as rifle hunting around our area. So a lot of the deer got shot, so it was hard to find a good, solid deer. I mean, most of the deer we were shooting were a year and a half old, so I kind of got tired of shooting just young bucks, and there was nothing else to shoot if you was tired of that. And so I really just put myself into turkey hunting in a big way, right. and obviously a two-year-old longbeard was a trophy animal, and so uh, I soon started winning turkey calling contest, and then immediately, you know, I met up with the guys at Realtree, and they, they paid me to go guide turkey hunters and guide outdoor riders and celebrities, and I think it was around then, probably when I was between 18 and 21 years of age, that's when it hit me that thought, man, I could, but there is a such thing as a hunting industry. In other words, where you can have a job working to promote, whether it be through guiding, through selling product, through all these things that I can make a living. I didn't know what or how, um, never had any intentions of being a TV host, never was a goal nor dream. Everything just kind of happened. Doors opened, right. and I met a lot of really cool people. And the one thing I remember more than anything, there was no job that I wouldn't have done, from weed eat to sweep floors to clean to toilets to guide turkey hunters to hang tree stands to run a camera to go hunt, what whatever. And, and I think that's one thing I've always told the young kids that want to go out there. I think everybody wants to be a TV you know, personality. And so they just want to start by being a TV personality. Yeah. It can happen, but you know, to, you got to be, if you really love it, you got to jump in there and you got to pay your dues and you got to work. And I think that goes whether you're going to be a professional football player or anything. You don't start and when they wake up, you know, when you're 30 years old inside, you're going to go play for the Atlanta Falcons. There's a lot of practices, there's a lot of working out, and there's a lot of wind sprints, there's a lot of things you did 
pretty much from, from a young age all the way through high school through college to make it to that pro level. And then only then there's only a small percentage that make it. So um, I think hard work and that, that my dad instilled in me and just a good attitude helped me gain some respect and get the opportunities that a lot of people wouldn't have got back in then because anybody that I worked around and with, whatever they needed me to do, I would do it. And so, uh, uh, but it was, it was around that time, I say 1821, when I realized that I want to do something like this. And probably I was even younger than that when I realized that, man, I'm going to be a hunter probably around 12. Yeah. So when you, when you were starting to do that Turkey calling and, and started that realization um, that, Hey, I could make some money from the hunting industry. What did your folks say about that? Well, growing up in a rural area, everybody thought I was crazy. Um, except maybe my dad, but I remember having some really frank conversations with my grandmother. Um, another thing that, that that was kind of a, a sad situation that kind of put me in overdrive for hunting was when I was 16, my mother was diagnosed with, uh, or actually she was 15, but she was diagnosed with, with leukemia and she, she, uh, got diagnosed in February and she passed away that, that same June. And that was devastating to my my dad and myself. We had, at the time, seven foster brothers and sisters. So our house full of kids that we were trying to give back to and help through these hard times. My mama was really big on that. We didn't have a lot of money, but my mom had a big heart and a big kitchen. And she was always feeding everybody. And she was kind of the matriarch of our family. My dad was the breadwinner, but my mom was the glue that kept everything together. So when that happened, obviously, all of my foster brothers and sisters, they went away. So it was just me, my dad, and my one sister. And so for my dad and I, we, we were broke. We went bankrupt. Um, we didn't have insurance. Uh, it, it was just probably the hardest time I will ever go through in my life looking back. And so hunting, period, was the only thing. And each other, my dad and I grew really tight together because, you know, we'd be crying. And we was like, well, you know, good news. it's going to be a frosty morning. Let's go try to kill a doe under out in that food plot over there, you know, and, and, and literally just, it was our counseling. I mean, we, yeah. we didn't have them. We didn't go to talk to some psychiatrist and talk about what was going through. We, we prayed and, and, and went to church and prayed and asked for, you know, just to get us through it. And then we went hunting and, and that was it. And, and there's not a lot of people that understand that and except these rural areas and families that, that hunt a lot and fish a lot. And so for me, I just dug myself into it. And so I, it was almost like an escape. I felt like the better I could understand wildlife and the better I could get at this thing called hunting, it just drew me into a, a better place in life. Not not from a competitive standpoint around the area with other hunters. It just I just felt felt alive and I felt peace when I was in the woods, especially as I learned more about how to manipulate a turkey and got better at turkey calling. And so uh really and then when it led into a chance to get get a job and I realized they could be one. Uh, everybody in my family was very blue collar. My dad was a contractor, a carpenter. My uncle was, you know, my grandmother, my mother had worked at the mill. Um, and so, or, or Playtex at the time, you know, literally building bras and panties. And so everybody <laughs> worked and you did something with your hands. Uh, n- nobody in my family had a college degree. College wasn't even something you thought about. I never remember hearing my dad say, you got to go to college when you graduate. And so what I always heard though, you got to go to work, you know, and so when I mentioned that Realtree 
had hired me as a guide and they wanted me to run a camera. I remember my grandmother who loved me like no other telling me in a serious tone said, Michael, you've got to realize that you can't make a living hunting and fishing. And I remember I said, grandmama, but I'm, I'm running a camera. I'm really not hunting and fishing. And I think for the simplicity that my family was raised as hardworking Americans, they always looked at hunting as a hobby. And so it was kind of strange, Dan, that yes, I did have a lot of pushback on my family that they thought this was going to be something I did. Kind of like the kid who said, you know, I'm going to move to Nashville and be a country singer, you know, and then you run out there and, you know, just like I'd probably tell my boy if he did it, like, hey, you get up there and run, give a run, but you realize after a couple of years, you got to realize you got to go to work. And yeah. even though a lot of, I mean, Jason Aldean works and he works on stage singing his song, so does Luke Bryan and a lot of other people we know. I think they looked at this hunting thing for me as just that. Yeah. And so it wasn't until later that my uncles, my aunts, uh, my grandmama passed away before she really even realized it. I mean, I was already starting to be successful at it. And I remember it become a joke. I'd sit over there and my grandma would say, Mike, I just wish you'd go back and get you that heat and an air truck you used to drive. And, and you was making good money up there. You know, and I never told my grandma, like, Grandma, I'm making three times more than, you know, doing this hunt thing. And I am being a heat and an air man at this point. And, but she was more proud that I had a heat and an air truck that, that I had Michael on the side of it. And I had a uniform and a, yep. you know what I mean? And so yep. it, it was, it was different. And, and Dan, and you, you asked the question because I, I know, I'm sure you've had the same questions and, it, it's an odd thing, and, and now I think it's more obvious there is a hunting industry. You can turn on oh, the yeah. network television shows, and you see them, and so it's not something that's frowned upon. I think if a young kid comes in and says, look, one day I want to work in the hunting industry, I don't think a mom and dad says, no, that's that's not possible. So, But for me, it was really awkward to my family that, you know, Michael's done gone crazy. Heck, he's, he's thinking he can make a living going out there hunting. <laughs> you know, So right. it was really funny. So you jump on board with Realtree and uh, from there, you know, that story has been told uh, quite a few times, but as far as the hunting industry itself is concerned back then, when you started uh, until today, how have things changed? I know that's a, a very uh, vague question, but um, feel free to give your best answer. It's changed a lot, a lot for the good. And some for the bad. It, it's I, I think somewhere we got to find some middle ground right now where the industry's at. And uh, now I've I've had a chance to work in the hunting industry for 22 years. So ever since I've been 21 years old, I've been working in this industry at some level or capacity. Back then, the number one thing that I realized was everything was very stiff. Unless you enjoyed seeing a successful turkey hunt or a deer hunt. There was no entertainment value to any of the hunting shows. Now, some people might get mad at me for saying that, but that's a fact. And if you don't believe me, ask your wife. Um, you know, <laughs> ask my wife. A ask any woman who was forced to watch that. It's, it, it, there was probably There's probably more entertainment of us being forced to watch Bachelor or Bachelorette than for our wives <laughs> who have to watch, you know, really Realtree Outdoors back in 1994. Um, because it was really stiff. You, you didn't know or really understand the personalities of these men and women that were on these networks because I think we were worried about making an excuse for this lifestyle that we went out and shot animals. And so uh, I realized right away that 90% of these TV personalities were so much funnier, had so much more personality than what 
I was seeing on the TV shows. So I think it, I think the industry has changed to where you can be proud or you don't have to play defense when it comes to who you are as a hunter or the excitement that you get from finally shooting a turkey that, that maybe has been eluding you or finally getting that big buck that's on your trail cameras that's been – you know, pretty much nocturnal all year, and you finally got lucky and got the air in him, you know, one frosty morning, uh, and, and that emotion that comes out, it's not a he-man, it's just you're excited. It's it's a, it's a relief, a relief and a release. And so uh, I think you can cut up around camp, and so you can show it the way it is. Um, so I think it has changed a lot in that. On the other side of it, I think hunting also has been found that there's a lot of money around it. So I think industry has really moved in. I think you got a lot of big business that has moved in and around it that has really not a lot of passion for the hunt or the culture of, of the hunter and to make it progressing in a positive direction. It's more about there's money there. There's 13 million rednecks that buy this product, and we're going to get here and do what we can. And, and I think some of that is not necessarily good in this industry because I think it over-commercializes it, it, and it sometimes can take advantage of the hard-working men and women who do put their money into uh, hunting apparel and hunting gear. So that part of it, I don't like. Um, I think there is a lot of uh, people who that has changed in the way that they think immediately that if they can just go out and kill some big, huge animals, that they can become a household name or be loved by the hunting community. I don't think that's that can happen. I think you can get respect. Sometimes if you kill a big animal, I think it's nice. We all desire that, but I think it's in the way you promote it, the fun and the adventure. And, you know, bottom line is I don't care who you are if uh, or what you shoot. If somebody at the end of the day don't want to spend or get excited about sharing camp with you and just hanging out and shooting the bull and going hunting turkeys with you or shooting dove, right. then, you know, you can't make a living just because your mama wants to see you. you got to have other people want to hang around you. And, and so uh, – some, some of those characters, I think, they, they put themselves on this pedestal, this self-proclaimed pedestal of excellence or elitism, but they're the only ones that's really their fan. And uh, and like I said, these are, these are hard things. A lot of times the industry don't want to talk about it, but it's very apparent. And the only reason I even talk at that level because I feel like I've earned that right to discuss it at this level because I sincerely love what our culture stands for. And I think in order for us to do it justice, we all have to figure out that right messaging as we find out now that we're losing hunters, we got to find out what is the message that gets people to re-sign out and rededicate their lives and families to hunting, to conservation, to this yeah. hunting heritage. And it's not going to happen through being elite. It's not going to happen. It doesn't mean that, damn, me and you don't want to be the best hunter we can be. It doesn't mean that we don't have bragging rights if, if, if we can hit a dot at 100 yards. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't be proud if we can – you know, run 10 miles and not even break a sweat. But to everybody, that ain't fun. I yeah. mean, and so uh, our industry is so divided sometimes to where, you know, now it's like, you know, Dan, so you got a nice buck. Well, what'd you shoot him with? Where was he at? Did you have any trail cam pictures? How old was he? Yeah. Did you shoot him in a blind or was you on a tree stand? Oh, was you on the ground? Did you still hunt him? Was it on private ground, public ground? Do it yourself. I mean, there's all these questions that every hunter gets to ask to find out if they're legit or not. And bottom line is, I hunt for one simple reason, Dan, at this point in my life. I'm a 43-year-old man who's always worked my butt off to pay my taxes and take care of my family. I've been blessed that I work 
in the industry that my adventures are videotaped that we can hopefully find some entertainment or bring some entertainment to some living rooms across America. However, the number one reason I hunt is because it's fun. I enjoy it. The thought of hanging up this call and you said, hey, Waddell, I'm 10 minutes away. I'm bringing some ribs. I got some of those Red Link sausage, and I pulled, and I pulled, went through North Carolina and got some of that good barbecue sauce you like so much. Next three or four days, let's go kill us some turkeys. That, to me, still sounds fun. Yeah. That sounds fun to me. If we kill something, fine. If we don't, that's fine. I got a buddy named Dan that's coming down. We're going to chase turkeys. We're going to eat some good food. We're going to tell some lies. We might drink sweet tea. We might drink an adult beverage. It's our prerogative. <laughs> We've all worked too damn hard to not enjoy that part. And I think that when it gets down to it, we have got to concentrate on bringing fun back to the hunt. And and I think the more we do that, then our kids are going to want to put these iPhones. They're going to, our wives are going to say, you know what? My husband's hunting camp looks fun. My yeah. God, they're they're cooking like they're in some New York City deli or a <laughs> or, or restaurant. I mean, that, you know, that dude makes the best chili I've ever had. They can build a big campfire at night and tell stories and listen to some good old country music. And I mean, th- this ain't about killing stuff. This is about just fun vacation. I think when we start celebrating that more, I think we'll start immediately start changing the mindset of these young kids, women. And I think we can rededicate a lot of these hunters that otherwise it's gotten too expensive. To, to get out there and hunt based on the criteria of what they feel like they got to be as a man to shoot a deer, right. you know? And so, uh, I, I just think that's some problems that went to the bad that necessarily didn't exist as much in those early years that it's evolved into. And I think that's something we got to get out of to. So combine the standpoint of having fun, using your personality, using the fun of it, but eliminate this elitism that so much of the industry is, uh, just kind of replicating right now and trying to think that that's, what's going to put them on top or put them on top as somebody who can help sell stuff. I don't think it sells. That's just my opinion. Right. Right. And kind of elaborating on that, um, you know, this past year at the ATA show, uh, I, I walked up and down the halls and I saw, and this was just my uh, personal view on things. I saw kind of a lack of acknowledgement uh, towards conservation efforts, whether it was for deer or for turkey or for elk or for sheep. Um, how important is it to have the industry also, or when I say industry, I mean the companies in general, to also have a focus on conservation as well? I think it's very important. I, I think a lot of times that us as hunters, sometimes we don't really understand what conservation means, meaning sometimes I think conservation is kind of a weird term because I think in our world we look at it as being conservative or maybe we're trying to conserve and therefore it won't give us an opportunity to hunt. Right. So I think what the industry has to do along with the nonprofit organizations, uh, one, one, actually two I think is doing as good a job as ever is, um, uh, actually three, I, I should put three, but the National Wild Turkey Federation does a ph- phenomenal job of combining true conservation with hunting heritage. Um, the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation does a phenomenal job. And another organization that, that's doing a good job is quality deer management, I think. Um, but when it gets down to it, yes, conservation has to exist, especially now with the expansion of human. And we have to make sure we conserve. And obviously, hunters are the number one conservation out there. I just think there needs to be some education and these companies and these nonprofit organizations that are about conservation have to educate us as the hunters 
that conservation is not something that goes against hunting. It's actually all for it. And the messaging has to be right side by side and um, to where it preaches hunting heritage and conservation because if you don't conserve, you don't have nothing. I mean, prime example, look at our checking accounts. There's con- if you don't have if you don't practice a little bit of conservation, you know, in your pu- public in your private finance, I can tell you you're gonna be broke. I mean, you better <laughs> learn how to. That, and so you're, you're conserving so you can spend more. Right. Uh, and so I, I definitely think conservation goes hand in hand, and we definitely have to stand behind it. And I think every company that that makes a living or does has a representation in the industry definitely needs to put back to these conservation groups. Gotcha. Um, do you still have any type of role uh, with the NWTF? Actually, I do. Um, I actually serve as as kind of a co-chair with, with Brenda Valentine. She's a female. And actually, uh, Ryan Newman is actually signed on, too. We're, we're basically, what do you want to call it, try to be ambassadors, you know, uh, national spokespeople. Um, I, I do go to a lot of banquets this past weekend. I went to North Carolina, and uh, they had their annual youth season. I went down, and we we donated basically several hunts to where I went, took kids out. I was at three different banquets as well as a youth hunt just really trying to promote hunting in general through, through the National Wild Turkey Federation. So, yes, I'm very involved in the National Wild Turkey Federation, and I will be long as they allow me to be because that's where I kind of got my start, and that's where the doors opened in the industry was through the turkey hunting part of it. And uh, and with that said, after really, really digging in deep before I kind of put my name and attached myself at that level with the National Wild Turkey Federation, I want to sit back and go to a lot of these events and see what they really did with their money and see if they practice what they preached. And, and through my diligence, I found that they did at a level that was astonishing to me. So I really enjoy it. It's kind of, I'm not, despite what people think, I'm not, I'm not like a super wealthy man. I've made a good living in this industry. So I'm not in a place that I can just go write a million dollar check or even a, our, our company's not in a place where I can even give them a four or $500,000 check. If I can, and we get to that place, I gladly will. But right now, I can give them my time. I can give them my dedication. I can auction off some hunts to where I can take kids or, and I can put that money back into the uh, organization. So that's kind of what I'm doing from the standpoint of just my, not necessarily philanthropy, but my way of saying thank you to this industry that's given me an opportunity to, uh, I mean, my goodness, where else, Dan, can you take a turkey call and figure out a way to make a living with it? You're not doing that in <laughs> North Korea and Turkmenistan and, and everywhere else. You can't do it in France. You can't do it in Germany, but you can do it in America. So for me, the National Wild Turkey Federation is one place I can, I feel strong and feel good laying in bed at night knowing, knowing that I'm working with them and helping kind of get their message out there. Right, right. Now, this is I. I'm a. I hate politics. All right, I'm that kind of guy. I <laughs> I, I get in arguments with my friends, and I just tur- would rather turn around and walk away. But you know, you were you were fairly adamant about um, politics in this last election, and a lot of it revolved around. Uh, I shouldn't say all of it, but you know, for conservatives, we we always talk about the. Um, you know, the second amendment, right. And right to bear arms and all all that stuff. But as conservatives, you know, the hunters, we, a lot of us hunt on public ground. And a lot of that ground is um, in jeopardy right now with all these, um, you know, these uh, federal to state transfers as conservatives, 
would you have any advice or any information to give us about how to be conservative and vote conservative, but at the same time, the, 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 the politicians that we are representing are also trying to take away something that we love as well? Yes, Dan, and that brings up a really good point. And and it's and, and I'm I'm like you, I hate politics. I, I think most all politicians. I've just never been a big fan of. The more I learn about them, the more I don't like them. Again, I'm not saying all politicians are bad. I'm just not into politics, nor am I into politicians. I've just never seen a lot of good come out of it. <laughs> right. However, in, in, where we sit, and you're right, conservative. Um, um, most most hunters are conservative, and. Better yet, most hunters work for their families. They're not, they don't feel entitled, meaning just look at what hunting stands for. I'm going to leave my home, and we're getting back to the early conversation of how I looked and saw hunting when I was a kid. I saw my papa or my dad leave my home to go out to get something in the wild, to grow shop in the wild, to bring home to my family. That is, a, that is proof that no hunter truly feels entitled it, it proves he understands how to take advantage of his opportunity. So typically hunters are conservative people that don't feel entitled. So that means they will get up and go to work to bring home income for their family. Uh, and so I think that's why most people, you know, vote Republican on the conservative side when it comes to hunting. However, you bring up a great point about the public ground. It's been a lot of controversy and, and stuff. And even when, the Clinton campaign and, and Trump finally made it to the point where he was going to get a chance to to be the Republican nominee. There was still a lot of indecisiveness, of, especially on that topic. Like, well, holy cow, you know, uh, the, the 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 Republicans are going to do away with our, you know, public grounds are going to do this and that. So thank the Lord, I've never had this opportunity, Dan. But I personally had a chance to sit down and talk to Donald Trump, Donald Trump Jr. and Eric in Las Vegas. Um, two years ago. I personally, and the whole meeting was he had met with about 30 people in the hunting industry. And I was one of the lucky people who got a chance to sit down and talk with him. I was not necessarily on this Trump train. I knew I wasn't on the Clinton train. I, I would have voted for a Ninja Turtle, the weakest Ninja <laughs> Turtle rather than vote for freaking Hillary Clinton. I can tell you that. And, uh, however, I wasn't hundred percent convinced of everything Trump was saying and doing. And, and this was one of the bills or one of the parts of it. I personally asked him what he thought of it. I personally asked him, me and him, nobody else but him and his two boys sitting there, because he said, Michael, we got to get these hunters out to vote and vote for me. And I was like, but Donald, why should they vote for you? You know, I don't mind doing that. And I was a little intimidated. I never talked to a president nominee, presidential nominee. And, and I was like, I don't mind. I said, from what I said, I know I'm not voting for Clinton. I said, but, you know, I have integrity. I, if I tell people who watch our shows or maybe tune in our Facebook, you know, how do you feel about it? And 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 Donald Senior spoke up and Donald Junior spoke up. You know, it's kind of both good to hear. Donald Donald Senior said, "Michael, he said, first of all, you ain't gonna find two no bigger hunters than my two boys right here." And um, he said, "They hunt public ground. They hunt private ground." He said, "They've taken me hunting. I've hunted quite a bit, but I've learned that I suck at it. I'm not good. I don't have the patience." <laughs> And which which makes sense, you know, his, his personality. He said, but I'm for it. I'm not against it. He pulled out at that same time. He pulled out his wallet and showed me he had a New York concealed carry. And I'm thinking, I'm just a redneck from freaking Georgia. You know, here he is talking to me. And, and, you know, and so immediately when I left there, one thing we talked about was a public ground deal. And 
I haven't really kept up with it all to date, but Donald Jr. told me that that was one of the biggest things they were going to fight to protect, to make sure that public ground, that, that we had the right to continue hunting. As a matter of fact, they even said they wanted to change the laws and even some of these other parts to where it was open to public hunting. And so that was something immediately when I left that particular meeting, I thought, okay, I'm in. So if they do anything different, then they're looking me in the eye and they lied to me. Not saying a politician can't. They make a living line. But at that particular time, Donald Trump didn't appear to be a politician. He, he, right. he actually appeared to be a very rich American who was sick of politics. So therefore, that's how I felt. And the one specific issue that come up was public ground. So I'm going to see. I, I do talk to Donald Trump Jr. Uh, uh, from time to time. We text a lot. And so that's one thing I want to follow up with them and make sure they're making strides on to, to see and check in because I've had a lot of people that have asked me specifically about the public hunting, and they feel that potentially it is a conservative party that's going to do away with it. Yep. Based on the information I got and the insight, uh, the Trump campaign is fighting hard to make sure they, they resist that and they keep it there for you and I. However, as we see, and there's a lot of resistance. Sometimes it's, it's it's it that's a strange world up there in washington dc but uh as long as i can breathe and i've got their numbers i'm gonna call them every day to remind them of what they told me that particular day in uh, las vegas <laughs> well hopefully all that holds true man um i sure hope so so getting back to the fun stuff now um you know you've you know you've been in the industry damn near 20 years now or over 20 years and you've you've had the opportunity to do several things go on you know several hunts do you have a like a favorite hunt that you look forward to every year or a, a hunt that was maybe a, a once in a lifetime hunt that uh, just blew you away um yeah it's funny for me it's it's more seasonal um I would say probably the, the biggest vibe of excitement I have every year is when I know turkey season is coming in. Not particularly a particular hunt, but just the season in general. I just freak out. I become 10 years old again. I'm sitting around in a daze. My wife is, you know, like, Michael, what's bothering you? What are you thinking about right now? It's like that episode, It's like that scene on Sling Blade when – you know, Jack, John Ritter, remember that? And he's like, what are you thinking about right now? You're in deep thought. And remember, he said, I, I just want a couple of cans of that potted meat and some of them taters or what? I don't forget what it was. French fried taters. But for me, yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of them French fried, I made a couple more cans of that potted meat. So my wife was like, what are you thinking about right now? I'm like, you don't, it's really boring. And you're like, what? Seriously? And she's thinking I'm depressed about something's like i was really thinking that tomorrow i'm going to set up on that east ridge and i think them turkeys are moving up that bottom kind of going back out toward that you know boat plot stand uh, you know and, and and she's like are you serious like yeah and pretty much anytime you see me looking this way i'm thinking about how to kill a turkey and where yeah. they're going to be gobbling and so uh that that is held true i'm proud to say that this has been the 29th year in a row that I've never missed an opening day of turkey season in Georgia with my dad. This particular spring, um, my dad killed one Saturday and my oldest son killed one Sunday, both of them in Booger Bottom. And so that nearly like brings a tear to my eye now because now I'm getting way more sentimental. I would say the only other hunt that really just 
freaks me out that I get that type of excitement is, is elk season. So, uh, yeah. I, I, I don't know. I just, I just, I love elk hunting and probably the number one best hunt I've ever been on that I remember that still just chokes me up is and, and for fun and the value of it was if you heard any part of this podcast at the beginning, you heard me talk about my mother and you heard talk about the relationship I had with my dad after my mother passed away. And even prior to that, that, that we really didn't have a lot of money and we'd always dreamed of, of going elk hunting out West, you know? And so I had that opportunity to go first. And so my dad um, had always said, he said, you know, man, one day me or you one is going to get an elk. We never say we're going to kill a bunch of elk, but me or you one, we're going to get a chance to shoot an elk with our bow and arrow and we're going to put an elk over the fireplace. And uh, and so it's kind of like one of these almost pipe dreams, like bucket list things that yeah. we knew one day we'd hope to do. We never had the money. Well, I got a chance to start working in the industry. I got an elk with my bow first, and I'd had a chance to kill several through my career. And so it's the first thing I did when, when I made a little bit of money at Bone Collector. Actually, not even on Bone Collector. Bone Collector still wasn't making any money. I had gotten just enough personal endorsements and money that I went and I'm telling you, I spent $10,000 and I bought my dad an elk hunt at the Sea Vista where I'd seen them Primos boys doing yeah. their truth videos and where I'd seen so many other hunting shows, I think Texas trophy hunters and so on and so forth. And I was like, you know what? I'm not looking for anything but the best. My dad has busted his ass his whole life to make sure I had food on the table, electricity in my house, I had football cleats to run in, and he took me to every football practice or baseball, whatever. I'm going to buy him an elk hunt. And I went out there, and me and my dad went. And I'm telling you, Dan, he, he, we, we hunted for about three or four days. We was on bugling elk. This bull comes screaming up through there. It was about a 315-inch 6 by 6 My dad shot that bull, and I cried <laughs> like a baby. I mean, it was just. I can't even explain it. And we got it on video. It was on the episode of Bone Collector, you know, that first season. And uh, that was probably my favorite hunt. And it was almost like the first time in my life that I felt like my daddy did so much for me that I felt like I had just at that point give back something to him that he might not have felt like he could have ever gotten on his own. And, and I can't explain that emotion, but that, that was the coolest feeling for me as a son to be able to deliver that and to get it on video it brought back floods of memories from my mom, those hard times. And, and even now I was thinking, you know what, there's going to be a freaking elk over my fireplace and go to bottom for my dad. And so even now talking about it, I about get choked up, but that that's probably be my all time favorite hunt. And, you know, I've seen my, all my kids, I got one in here that's only a uh, nine months old. So obviously he ain't shot nothing yet, but <laughs> all my kids have had a chance to be there when they got deer and Turkey. And, uh, that was really special, but there was something about that that just I'd be hard to beat it'd just yeah. be hard to beat because it's it's all about where I was from there's a lot of tragedy in it but at that point it was wildlife and it wasn't about the death of an elk it was about we made it me and my dad made it through this tough cycle in life and we experienced something together that really felt like a pipe dream you know years ago especially when we were bankrupt broke you know mom was gone his wife was gone and it was just something we talked about over a tomato sandwich watching Dukes of Hazard, literally, you know, yeah. and, and now it's, it's like, we did it, you know, it's just a very spiritual, thank you, Jesus type of opportunity. And so, uh, I don't know. It's like, that was just one of the coolest experiences I've ever had in the woods. Right. 
Well, man, that's a, that's an awesome story. Um, now as the, you know, that's a great story about your, your dad, but you know, as any good hunter and any good father is going to do, he's going to try to pass those traditions down to his kin as well. So are your, are your kids, um, as enthusiastic about hunting as you are, or do you have a couple that are, eh, I, my dad hunts and I'm really not into it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've got <laughs> enough kids that obviously, uh, I'm going to have a lot of different vibes and feelings with them, but, or, or they, you know, they have toward it. And I would say overall, all my kids enjoy it. Um, okay. I would say, I would say right now, you know, out of my four kids that's old enough to hunt, Mason and McCoy are definitely the most passionate about it. I've got a son named Meyer who likes it, but he's not just enthralled with it. Matter of fact, he loves to go to the hunting shows with me probably more than he likes to hunt. And I got a little girl, Addie. She just turned 10. She got her turkeys, got her deer, and says she's just a little old sassy little girl. I don't know how much, I can't tell how much she loves to hunt or she just wants to go out there and get in her camouflage and bebop around the woods. But, um, yeah. And ironically, um, it, it's funny, my wife loves to hunt. It, it's, it's a really weird deal because my son, my oldest son, is on the high school bass fishing team right now. Okay. And he would rather fish than hunt. And I, and I wonder sometimes, I, you know, I think because it, it's almost like, you know, I, I, I'm so, I hunt so hard and I'm pulled so many different directions at these hunting shows. And, you know, whether people call me Michael Waddell, Realtree Road Trips or the Bone Collector, whatever, I think there's so much of a weird shadow, even though I try my best not to, you know, I, I, I don't claim to be this great hunter. I just love to hunt and my living comes from it. I think my kids sometimes, at least Mason, he gravitated to the fishing because it's all his. I'm not. Daddy is not an expert right. bass fisherman. I mean, I, I'm I'm a catfish and bluegill. I, I like to catch my stuff and release them back in Lake Crisco. You know what I mean? I'm I'm, I'm I, I eat fish. I don't <laughs> turn them loose. And so bass fishing for Mason, I think, is something that is his. And you know what, Dan? Proud. Just a couple weeks ago, my boy and um, his high school fishing partner. They won the Georgia State Championship, and there was over 120 boats out there, and so that was all him. Daddy couldn't buy that trophy for him. I couldn't do anything about it. They had the the, the, the weight that won the tournament, and so that was big for him, and I was so proud that he was able to take something that that still come from the family, the hunting and fishing family, but he took that to, a ne- to the next level of passion and and, 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 and one with it. And so, yeah, I would say they all like to, to hunt, but I definitely, you know, they, they all like it. And, and, and I would say Mason McCoy probably love it probably more than the other two. Gotcha. Did it, was it something that came natural for them or, you know, obviously you have to do your job and expose them to it. Um, or was there any, was there any type of scenario where they, you know, they were kind of standoffish at first and then you like, get in the, get in the blind or come on, let's yeah. go. Or did you ease them into it? I just kind of eased them into it. You know, you, you would, you would, you would assume that every baseball, you know, players, you know, kid is going to play baseball. And, and a lot of times that's the case. And you would assume that if you're a hunter, that your kids are going to hunt. Obviously there's a lot of kids can get into. And so I just basically just always made it available. And I was telling them like, Hey, if y'all ever ready to go hunting now, Mason being, he was my first kid. 
I would say I forced it on him. I mean, he was four years old, and I'm trying to cut down a 20 gauge and put it in his hands to kill a turkey. He couldn't even hold up. I mean, he couldn't hold up a stick. He was still crapping in his diaper, and I'm trying to get him to shoot his gun. So I definitely pushed him. I mean, because I wanted to see my boy get something. My other kids, I let it come to them. I was like, "Y'all want to go? You want to go?" And they all came to me like, "Dad, we're ready." And and I and I found through that that. You, you can get a kid out there in Georgia pretty much. They can come right off breast milk and go hunting. I mean, there's no – you know how you grew up in Alabama, Georgia, been around those states a lot. I mean, there's no, like, age limit, which I love. And I think sometimes it's easy to get them out there too early. And I found that around that 9 or 10 years old age is when a kid, especially a boy – I don't – Lord, I'll get thrown a rock at being a, being, being a sexist here, but – the, the the boys at nine or ten develop usually enough strength that they can kind of handle a lighter twenty gauge or a lighter gun for the, the the integrity of it, not necessarily the recoil, but being able to handle it where they can hold it as much. And I found that around eleven years old, the, the girls do better. That doesn't mean you can't do that before that. But I would say my kids, my the youngest I had one of my kids be successful, he was six years old, and that was McCoy. Uh, Mason was also six and seven when he got his first deer in turkey my little girl shot a turkey and a deer when she was eight and so uh they all love it meyer also was around at seven years age um but but they all came to me and asked me and now i don't even i don't even tell them about the hunt i ask them if they want to go and if they want to go they don't and then sometimes they say no dad we just want to do this tomorrow can we go to a movie can we do this or we want to go camping and, and go build a pond down or you know go dam up the creek and so that's what i do and so at least i've led them to it and and so when they want to go i take them and when they don't want to go i don't and then kind of getting back to practicing what i preach i want them to have fun doing it i don't want them to necessarily feel like they got to do it because it makes dad happy i want them to do it because it's something they want to do gotcha so, you know, you know, whether it's the hunting industry or being a steward of hunting, when, when it's all said and done and, you know, whether you hang up your boots from the TV world or, you know, you pass on from this life, what do you want when, when people say Michael Waddell, what do you want people to, to know and understand more about you? Yeah, that's, that's a, uh. That's a pretty deep question, and I, I, you know, it's hard to say. But overall, Dan, I, I really hope, from a standpoint, if there's a legacy to be left, to where Michael Waddell maybe did something or impacted or left something, I really just hope they could say he passionately loved hunting. He sincerely did his best to promote it. He tried to think outside the box. And he wasn't afraid of any ridicule to represent what he thought was truly the the real culture of what this hunting means to the high percentage of us who have a hunting and fishing license. And uh, I, 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 I hope that people can realize that with me that I sincerely love people. I want people to be successful. Um, I, I don't want them to fail, whether it's in hunting turkeys, elk, deer, or anything, or life in general. I truly want people to find joy and, and to be successful and to find what it is they're good at and to, to not make excuses for it and to just get out there and do it and get it done. And so I, I hopefully, when it's all said and done, somebody can say, you know, Michael made a difference 
you know, and he, here's what it is. I don't know what it might be, but Michael did make a difference in this industry by doing these things that he passionately believed in. And, and I think that would be the biggest legacy that I think I could leave. Um, and, and the last thing I'd ever want to be accused of is somebody that was seeking fame or trying to be a poser or trying to be somebody who just signed hats at a hunting show. Yeah. Um, to me, that means nothing to me. I, I, I respect the fact that somebody might may want, want me to sign their hats. I respect that. I'm not saying that that's dumb. I, I definitely respect it. To me, that's a very humbling experience. But in the end, I want to make a difference. I want to help sell more hunting licenses. I want people to understand that hunting kept me off drugs. Hunting kept me out of a lot of trouble. Hunting keeps me with my family, my dad. It keeps me bonded with my kid, my wife. I mean, and, you know, I've cried with my dad on a mountain. You know, I've, I've talked with him turkey hunting on opening day about everything we went through with my mother. It, it has been something that is so, so far beyond just shooting an animal. And, uh, and there's not anybody out there that respects God's renewable resources more than us true hunters who want to put our tags on these animals. That sounds so strange to somebody who don't hunt. But to you and to so many of the listeners out there, they know exactly what I'm talking about. We sincerely love these creatures that we are hunting down, that we're putting on our table. We understand that these wild animals have the advantage. We also understand that they need us to help protect them, to balance them at times, and to make sure that we nurture and protect their environment, their habitat. And so there's such a deep, detailed connection to everything that we do as hunters. And I hope somehow... When it's all said and done, people can say, well, Michael Waddell helped people understand that messaging. And uh, if they never remember anything I've ever shot, that don't bother me. You know, I, if somebody says, well, you know, I don't even know if Michael killed a big deer. To me, that's even a bigger compliment to, to what we've accomplished. So in the end, I just hope people can say I made a difference in some sort of way to this industry and to this culture that we call hunting because I think that we're in a fight. I think we're in an environment right now, Dan, that where we have so much of the liberal America pushing down on us that they basically say we're going to choose to hate you, never even attempt to understand your culture, that you like to shoot animals or have a pistol or have the right to your Second Amendment. We're going to continue to judge you and to hate you, but we're going to force you to accept us no matter what it is. And if we decide that we want our son to pee beside your daughter in a public restroom, you just have to get over it. And so when it gets down to it, we're in a fight, and I think it slipped up on us. And as hardworking conservative people, we let things slide away because we mind our own freaking business. Dan, Dan, you're worried about your family. You're not worried about everybody else's. I'm worried about my wife in there sitting in the living room during this tornado watch and my young son. I'm worried about that. I'm not worried about everything else. It doesn't mean that I'm not worried about everybody else, but I'm worried about what is happening, and I'm trying my best to sleep around my own front steps. And so when it gets down to it, for me, where I'm at right now is so – I think there's so much more I can try to do, more than just hunt or even our bone collector brand. It's about a culture that we have to make no excuses for in hunting and fishing and that we are just trying to say we're an asset to America. We're hardworking people that enjoy everything the good Lord gave us. We still fear God. We still – understand that it's our responsibility to have dominion over these wildlife, uh, over these fisheries, and we to take care of it. And there's nothing wrong with hunting and fishing and enjoying that and putting it on our table to eat with our family and our friends. So uh, 
that's a really broad stroke, but in that there's a message that I hope people understand that there's a lot of sincerity when it comes from me and, uh, and I've been blessed thus far to, to do my best to represent what I thought was right about our culture. Amen. Mr. Michael Waddell, thank you very much for taking time out of your day to, to come on the podcast and, uh, share some stories and words of wisdom with us. Well, I appreciate it, Dan. Well, you keep fighting a good fight and good luck all the rest of the turkey season and going into fall, buddy. And there you have it. Another Monday podcast in the books. Hopefully you guys enjoyed today's conversation with Michael Waddell. Huge shout out to Michael for coming on the podcast and uh, being BSing with us for a little bit. I really appreciate your time, buddy. Also, thanks to each and every one of you who has tuned in to this podcast, whether this is your very first time or you've been a religious follower of it since uh, day one. Appreciate it all. Uh, huge shout out to the the partners of this podcast. Deer Lab, Ripcord, Wasp, Exodus, Ozonics, and Gearhead Archery. Thank you very much for uh, your support. And uh, because of you guys, this podcast continues to grow and rock and roll. And uh, other than that, guys, be sure to go check out the Nine Finger Chronicles on Instagram, uh, Nine Finger Chronicles on Twitter, and Nine Finger Chronicles on Facebook. And, uh, you know, if you get the opportunity and like the podcast, go to iTunes and uh, leave a review. Other than that, guys, thanks again for tuning in today. Thank you for listening, and if you are in a tree stand, I mean, it's getting to that time of year where uh, we got to start thinking about hanging some tree stands. Wear your damn safety harness. Have a good week.